So, are you ready? Oh yeah, I'm going to put this sack down and stop fidgeting with it. Are you fondling a sack? I am, and fidgeting with it in general. I should probably just stop. Okay, I'm ready now. You know now. how I love to include a bit before the credits now. I know, I know, yeah. I know. They know what I'm talking about. Go about your business. <laughs> Hello and welcome! I'm Simon. And I'm Jack. And we are your hosts for World 1 Stage 1, a classic video gaming podcast. Hello! And we're back again. Again. And I was just discussing, actually, earlier, how this is our cursed episode. It, this, this, I don't know why we're, we're mentioning this, because this episode probably won't ever air. No, because Half-Life episodes tend not to. Yeah. But yes, we've sort of given away now what, uh, what it, the episode is that we're going to be... Recording today? I have a sneaky feeling the title might have done that already. Oh, yeah. They see what it is when they download it. Who's they? The audience. We don't have one. The hundreds of people listening to us right now. Well, dozens. Well, you, well, me, and Rowan. And a Josh. handful. Four. At least. Yeah. At most. So, yes, we are discussing the 1999 video game classic. Half-Life. 1999? Yes. Wow. Or... 98. Sorry, my yeah. mistake. Okay. However, before we begin, I do just want to uh, put an image in people's heads, because this is something I last saw online. You, the last time you did this, I recoiled in terror. I don't you think you've heard me. this one before. Okay. No, I just A lot of our listeners will be, of course, gamers, which mm-hmm. means they will spend a lot of time sitting on those swively office chairs that go up and down on a hydraulic in the middle. Yep. I read an article about a young man who died when his swively office chair, yep. the hydraulic column, mm-hmm. failed and fired the central core upwards through the seat into his rectum. Just... <laughs> Tragic. Just a little something for all our listeners at home to think about next time they're sitting in front of their computer. That is tragic, but also... (laughs) The article was accompanied with a photo of the chair. Oh, man! I was sitting in one of those chairs when I read it. (laughs) Did you stand up? I felt quite uncomfortable, but no, I stayed sat down. I'm that lazy. (laughs) Oh, God! I'm going to assassinate people with office chairs. (laughs) I just thought I had to uh, spread the love with that mental image. Wow. <laughs> I also wanted to apologise for our absence for a few weeks. Uh, yes, I think you should. I think I should. It is actually largely my fault because... I was joking, but okay. Well, I've been the one who's been concentrating on my dissertation. Yeah, damn you. It's not like that's important or anything. Which, uh, for readers who aren't aware of how university and degrees work, especially in this country. Which would be me. In the final year of a degree course, pretty much everyone has to approach a dissertation, a 10,000-word essay. Now, academic writing is not my strong point anyway, so... It's been he just pretty pictures. 
I take pretty pictures, it's what I do. So a dissertation has been fairly hellish to write, but it was handed in today. So it will no longer be distracting me from, obviously, the higher calling of podcasting. Hooray! And with that out of the way, let's talk about Half-Life. Let's indeed. <laughs> Shut up his bum. <laughs> I have a feeling I may have lost you for most of this show to that one. <laughs> oh, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. <laughs> well, what a lot of people forget about Half-Life, which I think is sort of important to say right up front, it was Valve's debut game. Yes. I remember you telling me this when we we, we first tried to record this, yeah. this podcast many years ago. Gabe Newell and his co-founder, Mike Harrington, and I think there was one other guy who sort of set up Valve, mm-hmm. were actually Microsoft code monkeys before they set up Valve. They were geeks. They worked specifically uh, on the Windows teams. I think Windows NT at that, the geekiest of all Windows versions. I do not know Windows versions, so I'll have to take your uh, your mighty word for this. Yes, they left Microsoft because uh, Microsoft had a habit, especially in the tech boom periods of the late 90s, mm-hmm. of creating millionaires. Because when you joined, along with salary, they would give you as a bonus stock options. Ah, right. Now, Microsoft stock is a pretty good thing to have. Mm-hmm. And when it would vest, I mean, they would lock you into a contract by saying you had to remain at Microsoft for a certain period of time for your stock options to become valid. But then as soon as you did, you would become a millionaire. Yeah. Just overnight. Huh. And that's what happened to Gabe Newell. And he decided to spend his well-earned money uh, on fulfilling a lifelong dream and setting up a video game studio. Excellent. Okay. For which he hired the most sort of ragtag, unlikely team of creatives from around the Seattle area. Like tattoo artists as uh, visual artists. artists yeah. Uh, local garage bands to do the music. And I'm sure one of them was a pizza delivery guy as well. Yeah? I'm fairly sure one of the Valve team was doing pizza delivery when Gabe hired him. Awesome. And they got together and they decided to put together a game. And to do this, they actually licensed the Quake engine. Half-Life is based on the Quake engine, the first Quake engine. Quake 1, I, which is pretty impressive considering the difference between the two games. Oh, hugely. To the point that most people will tell you, or certainly when it came out, I think it's a little bit better known now. But when it came out, a lot of people mistook it for a Quake 2 engine modification. <laughs> but no, they went for the cheaper option and Smart did guys. more work. Yeah. And they did an extremely good job of upgrading the Quake engine. They put in things like skeletal animation and lip syncing and all these sorts of things, as well as, of course, the scripted animation engine for doing the cutscenes in-game. Which was brilliant and is a really good way to shit you up. And something you have to completely take your hat off to Valve to. They started that. Mm-hmm. And it's now sort of the de facto standard. Yep. I can't remember the last time I played a shooter, at least, with a pre-rendered cutscene. Well, unless you count the intros to the campaigns in Left 4 Dead, but that's a Valve game again, so they've sort of (laughs) rewritten their own rules. Except, of course, it's not really Valve. It's a company Valve bought into the Valve structure. But it's it's a thing for you, I suppose. Yes, well, because that's something they do and do well. Yes. So we'll be talking. Because we have to say, this particular episode is about Half-Life. However. It's about Valve. Because they're wonderful, wonderful people. And Half-Life really just set up a legacy that would continue there. But yes, we are talking about Half-Life at the moment. And 
I mean, they really showed that off from the very start of the game, the in-game animation sequence. The intro is like nothing I've ever played before or since. Mm. The arrival at Black Mesa is still pretty phenomenal. And all done in-game engine. You just don't see that, or you didn't see that beforehand, and Mm. now, of course, that's the paragon to which everyone else is reaching. See, I remember that the first time I ever played Half-Life was as a, uh, a demo on the PlayStation 2? Yes. Would have been, yeah. It was one of the first demos on the PlayStation 2. And I was saying, oh, this is, this is pretty good. But you started off in Black Mesa Research Facility. Mm. And a friend of mine had it on PC. So I sat down and played on his PC and realized, and that was the first time I'd ever seen the intro sequence with the, uh, the cab, the, the sort of, the monorail journey. Yeah. And that completely blew me away. And suddenly I went from being a good game to being a, a, a frighteningly wonderful game. <laughs> it was something completely different. Just to how much a, a good intro can mean in a game these days. Which is all the more amusing when you look at it as what it was going to be. If you go back and look at the tech demos they presented at E3, hmm. whilst Half-Life was in development, when the team were basically saying, let's make a game, it doesn't have to be great. It just has to be fun. It just has to get out there, get some sales, get our name recognised, and give us the money to plough into something better. Mm -hmm. So they took this not particularly overdeveloped version of the Quake engine to E3 and showed off what they thought was a fairly pedestrian shooter. But everyone else seemed to think different. Because what they had in there was the AI of the standard of Half-Life as it is now. Yeah. Um, The graphics weren't great, but the game was there. And people looked at it and recognised Game of the Year, most anticipated, and all these other awards. And they walked away from that, realising they could have something quite special on their hands. They'd just accidentally made the Game of the Year. (laughs) Yeah, basically, by mistake, we happen to have made the best game. Yeah. So Gabe basically pushed back the release date and said, we're going to take a year to strip out every art asset in this game, every texture, every model, everything and replace them with something a bit special. Yeah. Because if that version of the game was Game of the Year... What's the souped-up version going to be like? Exactly. If we actually put the effort and polish into it, what the fuck's going to happen to us then? And the answer's pretty simple. Uh, They won over 50 Game of the Year awards when they launched. Bloody hell. That's got to be some sort of record. I think it is. I think it is the record. Games by when it came out, I oh know, since actually, have recorded it because they ran online gaming back in the day. Yeah. As barring massively multiplayer games, the most played online game in the world. Wow. Okay. And that is largely due to Counter-Strike. Uh, of course, yes. Uh, of course, Half-Life was on the PS2, as you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, famously ported over by Gearbox Software. Who added in the multiplayer mode, wasn't it? The the cooperative... Uh, they did do um, Decay, the cooperative story of Dr. Cross and Dr. Green. Yes. The female Gordon Freemans. Which only ever managed to get about two levels into. And only existed really because of the art asset of Gina Gordon, who was originally Gordon's sister in the version of Half-Life where you could play as a man or a woman. Ah, okay. The art asset of a woman in a hazard suit was reused as the hologram for the training simulation. Ah, okay. And as Doctors Cross and Green 
for the cooperative version called Decay. Uh huh. Well, now I know. Uh, Gearbox also did um, Opposing Force. Ah, the uh, the add-on pack, the one of two expansion packs for the original Half-Life, in which you play as one of the Marines sent to Black Mesa to sanitize, clean up, and I believe Gearbox also worked on. Yes, they did. I uh, just checked my notes. They worked on the Dreamcast version, which never got released. I was saying I would have remembered a Dreamcast Half-Life. The Dreamcast version was made with uh, better graphics and more content. Oh. The content that eventually came to the PC version under the name of Blue Shift. Where you played as one of the Barneys, the security guards of was Black it, was Mesa. Was it Barney or was it just a security I think officer? it was Barney himself. Wow, okay. Uh... And, of course, when Blue Shift was released on the PC version, you also got the high-definition graphics update, as it is now known, but what was originally Dreamcast graphics. Ah, okay. There was also a Mac version, but, again, never came out. It's a game that's had a lot of dead-in-development stuff. Everybody wanted it, but... (laughs) So they salvaged what they could out of these conversions and turned it into the second expansion pack. Ah... These expansions continue the story, but we haven't touched on what the story, the story actually is. is. So... I'm sure most of our listeners know the story of Half-Life. But for those that don't... Very basically, you play an unlikely hero in a first-person shooter. A bearded, bespectacled physicist. And that's Half-Life being quite intelligent there. They know their market. Their market <laughs> are geeks. Yeah. So they give you a geek as a lead character. I mean, we're talking a PhD-holding physicist here, a multiple PhD-holding physicist. With a beard. Working at a top-secret facility, Black Mesa, which is out in the desert, largely underground. We're presuming it's a sort of Area 51 type affair. Yeah, no one's... no one. Well, I was going to say no one goes in, no one goes out, but the first thing you do is go in. So So that's clearly not true. Yeah. Black Mesa is, amongst other things, I'm sure... Working on teleportation. Yep. And other shady government exploits, I'm sure. Without doubt, such as the gluon gun. (laughs) However, the manner in which they're deciding to do teleporting comes with a price. You're using another dimension as a buffer zone. You drop someone into this other dimension and then pull them out again at their destination. This Mm. dimension is Zen. X-E-N. Whilst you're working on a related but fairly nondescript physics experiment. Pushing a cart into the centre of a room, I believe. Well, the resonance cascade, but your part is pushing a cart, yes. All hell breaks loose, to put it bluntly. Mm -hmm. And it's proven that teleportation is a success. However, a little bit too successful. Not only are they pulling through the people who teleport from Zen, but everything else... So a lot of the denizens of Zen end up popping into random points in Black Mesa. Which is akin, essentially, to alien invasion. Pretty much. But accidental alien invasion. Yes, absolutely. We didn't ask them to come. And they didn't decide to. We sort of just pulled them into our world. So no wonder they're a little bit pissed off. Yes. And of course, the early stages of Half-Life are a little bit survival horror in some regards, in that one of the denizens of Zen is the head crab. Mm-hmm. A parasitic being. Similar in function to the facehugger from Aliens. Mm -hmm. It latches on to various scientists' heads and turns them into zombie-like walking death monsters. Yep. 
And you, as Gordon Freeman, bespectacled, bearded, physicist supreme, with a crowbar. And an HEV. And an HEV, a hazardous hazard environment suit. Yep. Have to fight your way to freedom. That's the essential premise. Somewhere along the way, of course, the government decide to cover up the experiment by sending in the Marines to sanitise the area. As, as they always do in these situations. Which is why the opposing force element comes into it, where you are facing not only aliens, but also Marines. Yep. Dedicated to your destruction. With better guns, and grenades, and a chopper. And throughout the game, you are being silently observed by a sinister gentleman uh, yes. in a sharp suit. The G-Man? The G-Man. Now, this is something I, I, I keep meaning to ask. How does he? Where, where did he get that name from? Is he uh, just credited as that? Because no one ever refers to him by name? Or G-Man is a piece of US colloquial slang mm-hmm. referring to a government employee. Oh, okay. He's a G-Man. He's a government man. That's kind of obvious. Damn, I probably should have picked up on that. Also, oh, well. the file name that was the model for the G-Man was gman.mdl. Ah, so it works on two levels. Okay, cool. And the G-Man was one of the more fun Easter eggs in the game. Yeah. Firstly, there was the Easter egg of finding all the different spots where he popped up to watch you. Mm-hmm. But secondly, if you were to employ the no-clipping cheat, which for those not... Um, au fait with the terms means you can walk through walls yep. and solid objects and put your head in his briefcase. It wasn't empty. Oh? It contained a file, a dossier, labelled with the name G. Freeman. Okay. Just a fun little touch. That's really clever. I thought so. Wow. Okay. It may date back to a cutscene where he was supposed to open it or something, but it may be just a clever Easter egg. Huh. Wow. So it's a very basic premise, really, as a game as the game goes. Mm. What makes it clever, however, is the pacing of the storyline. Mm-hmm. How it goes from horror to action to some sort of prison break style. There's certainly stealth gameplay in there at points oh, as yep. well. And a lot of this comes from... Uh, Valve's wisdom in hiring a scriptwriter to write the game breakdown. Ah, okay. Mark Laidlaw, who is a fairly well-respected Hollywood scriptwriter, wrote the dialogue, the basic plot outline, and the pacing for Half-Life. Ah, so that's why it's very cinematic in its its feel and approach. Exactly. Because Valve saw games as interactive movies Mm. in a way that no one else had. Because an interactive movie up until then was, of course, more of a Philips Laserdisc-type job where you would watch a film and interact with it at some level. Mm. Uh, was it Dragon's Lair? I've never played the classic animated games, I know what one. you mean, yeah. Uh, whereas Valve thought, well, surely an interactive movie is one in which you play the star. Hmm. Hence Gordon's mute uh, presentation to the world so you can overlay yourself onto him quite easily. And thus a legend was born. The nameless, voiceless character. Well, he is named. Yeah. So, yeah. And he has a face. Yes. And because of this immersiveness, which is really the only word for it, when you're put into the game and into the cutscenes, you are immersed. It became hugely successful, hugely popular. 
the extremely detailed artificial intelligence of the other characters didn't hurt either. Absolutely. For the time, they were some of the most intelligent opponent AIs you could find. Outsmarted me. But what really sold the game was the mods. Ah, yes. Here we go. Being based on the Quake engine, it was, of course, as modifiable as a Quake engine. And mod developers basically jump to the nearest, newest game engine whenever they have an opportunity. So the people working on Action Quake came over to do Action (laughs) Half-Life. And people who had done similar kind of Capture the Flag mods came over to work for the Half-Life engine as well. Yeah. But most significantly, Gooseman and his team of friends worked on a little mod called Counter-Strike. Which is, well, probably pretty well known amongst people listening to this. It is, barring MMOs, the most played game online in history. So I would imagine a fair few of our listeners have probably played it at some point. Yes. If not being regular players. And if you do still do so, come on, play me and Simon. Or come and play Team Fortress 2. It's better. (laughs) Counter-Strike, of course, counter-terrorism mod very famously, in which you play either the terrorists or the Mm counter-terrorists throughout an array of real-world environments, in inverted commas. Realistic, we should say. Yeah. With different scenarios such as hostage rescue and bomb defusal. And I remember specifically we used to have a a LAN centre in Cheltenham. Yes, we did. Flukes. Whatever happened to that? I've no idea. It was a shame. I really enjoyed this. Oh, I first got into Counter-Strike. Hmm. And the thing about Valve is they didn't just let people mod the game, which is its approach. Mm-hmm. They actively encouraged it. They released more and more helpful documentation. Admittedly, sort of the first round of documentation was atrocious. Yeah. Well, they were, like I say, Microsoft Windows internal programmers. They had a very high register technical language. Yeah. And an assumption that everyone already knew what they were doing. Right. Not hugely community friendly. But they showed willing. Which is better than a lot of companies. Absolutely. And I think... (laughs) And I think when Counter-Strike turned around and became an incredible product and Valve offered them jobs... This is when it all started snowballing. Yeah. They appreciated the importance of this third-party developer community. They started documenting it properly. They had the Counter-Strike team to tell them what needed to be said in the documentation, etc. Cool. So they started to develop uh, things like what's... Now they have a whole wiki community dedicated to development. And they weren't the last mod people that Valve would give a commercial place to. By no means. Not by a long shot, in fact. I mean, fairly contemporary to Counter-Strike was the game Gunman Chronicles, Mm -hmm. which was a whole game. It was what used to be called a single-player total conversion mod, Hmm. which basically means using the engine to make an entirely new new game. game. And I the developers behind Gunman Chronicles were basically picked up by Sierra Studios, who were the publishers of the original Half-Life. Yeah. And on Valve's recommendation. And what was a mod was turned into a product. Hmm. It wasn't the most successful game of all time, but... But it's still a 
counted, I suppose, as a success story for the modders. Well, yes, I'd say it is the most commercially successful single-player total conversion of all time, because it got a shelf release. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And alongside that, of course, they were making games like Natural Selection and Science and Industry. I love Natural Selection. It's still played quite heavily. There's still a community behind it. It is. Unfortunately, I now only have Counter-Strike Source, so I can't download (laughs) Natural Selection. I need to get the old Counter-Strike. Well, Natural Selection was based on Half-Life, not Counter-Strike. Half-Life, that's what I meant. Yes. There we go. I've got (laughs) Half-Life 2. Not Half-Life. There we go. That's what I'm talking about. There we go. Well, if you've still got your Half-Life disc lying around... Probably, but you've seen my room. Probably. But what I was going to say is you only need your CD key. Ah. Because Steam which I was going to talk about later, but let's talk about it now. Let's talk about Steam. Steam is the online distribution service that uh, Valve came up with to escape from Sierra Studios. (laughs) Uh, They've started digital distribution in a big way, and I think it's a huge success, but more on that later. Mm -hmm. What it does acknowledge is if you type in an old CD key from Half-Life, it will add it to your Steam games list and let you download it. I believe it also adds Opposing Forces and Blue Shift at the same time. I've got to find me my old Half-Life case. <laughs> Which is a wonderful thing for them to do, saying, you know, we, we've introduced this new keep all your games online, download them onto any machine system, Yeah. and if you happen to own the CD, you own the game, you'll be able to download it through this system. Which is a fantastic system. Absolutely. So that was really what I think catapulted Half-Life beyond the success it would have had on its own feet, mm-hmm. to one of the most sold games of all time, was mods like Counter-Strike. And having a company like Valve behind it who are willing to turn mod teams into employees. Yeah. Which admittedly, on one hand, has the threat that they will turn something like Counter-Strike into a commercial product, which they did. And you think, this has been free for so long, now I have to pay for it? Well, the answer is no. The free version remained free. Yeah. So, hats off to Valve, really, for respecting the mod community. Absolutely. Which continued on. Now, what's really funny to me is everyone now, of course, knows the Source engine. Yeah. The engine behind Half-Life 2. Uh, Not everyone realises just how mundane the origin of that name is. Yes. Uh, I remember you telling me this, but it has completely f- left my mind. Oh, I've just realised I've left my phone on. We might have some interference from it throughout this recording. Well, I was like, oh, it's the mundane origins of the Source engine. Yes. Now, the scripting, the programming behind any program mm-hmm. is, of course, referred to as source code. Yeah. And so they did at Valve. They refer to it as their source, source code. code. However, as they were approaching the end of Half-Life as a product, when they were getting near to release date, the programmers were already moving on to the next thing they were going to work on. So what they wanted was a version of the source code that they could experiment with without risking what would become Half-Life. Yeah. So what they did was they forked the source code into two parts. That means literally taking the one code and making a copy of it. Hmm. One, they refer to as the gold source, because when a game is released, it goes gold. So-called because it used to be placed on a gold-coloured disc, which was sent to a duplication house and copied. Yeah. And that was the one that wouldn't change. Gold source. 
The other one was simply called Source. Hmm. Which then went on to... Yeah. So Which, a very mundane origin. Hugely mundane for what is now one of the best games engines in the world. I mean, how many games do you reckon that's been used in over the years, then? Well, actually, I'd say in pure number of games, id and epic have the yeah the, the strengthening numbers because the Quake engines have been used in an awful lot of third-party games, and the Unreal engines have been used in an awful lot of third-party games. Yeah, uh, the Source engine hasn't been used in that many. Uh, obviously, Bloodlines, the Vampire the Masquerade game, used it. I remember that specifically. Yeah, but it's not how widely it is used. That makes it a success. It's which games use it. Exactly. And once Steam was set up, Steam was really set up for the distribution of Half-Life 2. Yeah. And when they had the Source Engine, Half-Life 2, and Steam, what they had was a platform that was extremely exploitable for success. They've pulled in more and more third-party releases onto Steam. Mm -hmm. It's becoming... Every day it's becoming more akin to a high street shop in just the broad array of games you can buy on it. Yeah. I myself, over Christmas in their huge sale, bought all the id games, all the Dawn of War games, and that's fantastic. I now have them stored in the cloud for me, free to download onto any machine I find. And if after this, um, if after this podcast you're thinking, wow, Valve seem like pretty cool guys. They give away games and don't afraid of anything. I suggest you go to Steam and download the uh, the Valve Complete Pack. Absolutely, because that has everything on there from ha- from Half Life up to Left 4 Dead's the most recent thing on there, isn't it? I think they keep adding on to the pack. Yes, yeah. I mean certainly that was the first thing I bought on Steam was the Complete Valve Pack with yeah. Half Life, all of the expansions, Half Life Two, all and the extra episodes. At the time, it only went up to Episode One. Ah. Uh, uh, however, I then bought the orange box. Which gave you episode two. And Team Fortress, Fortress two, two. And Portal. Portal. <laughs> How oh. right it is that we should now come to Portal when I'm talking about the Source Engine, Steam, and Valve all coming together to make an extremely exploitable platform. Yeah. Now, my, if we're talking about Portal, my inner B-tard is going to come out. Great game? Or greatest game? Quite possibly greatest game. Just... Mind equals blown. The only complaint anyone can level against it that I will accept is that it is a bit short. Yes, absolutely. But as uh, another games reviewer did point out, that just means you're closer to the uh, the absolutely fantastic ending. That's true. And it is short, but also the perfect length. Yeah. You don't get bored of it. For what it is, it is the right length. And I think that's important because... As another game reviewer, perhaps the same one, may Mm -hmm. have said, inserting time-wasting elements to gameplay just to make it take longer is extremely annoying. Absolutely. If you've written a short but beautiful game, make it short and beautiful. I'll go back and play it again. Yeah. But Portal is another example of Valve's tendency to recognise greatness, and rather than take the Microsoft approach of destroy it utterly. Yeah. Or the approach of trying to compete with them and outdo them, Valve simply recognises that someone else has done a fantastic job and brings them into the fold. <laughs> it's a little bit perhaps mafia a little. in the analogy. Yeah. 
But the Portal developers became made men when they were brought into the Valve team, and Portal was shifted onto the Source engine, which made it much more pretty to look at. Oh, absolutely. And made their jobs... Actually, I've heard many interviews where they say their lives became much simpler because the physics engine in the Source engine is so robust (laughs) that it helped them out a great deal with a lot of the physics challenges in Portal. And there are a lot of physics challenges in writing Portal. When you can have one discrete line where the direction of gravity changes as you move over the threshold. <laughs> it's it's a mind-boggling game, that one is, for the physics. Again, for those unaware, and seriously, what are you doing? Go play now. <laughs> Portal is a very simple puzzle game where you are put through well, a series. I don't know about simple. Ultimately, it's a very simple puzzle game because every puzzle has the one same. single solution. Yeah. Use a portal. Yeah. It is very simple, but very elegant. So it's it's not obvious, but it is simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherein you have the ability to create portals. You paste a portal on one wall or surface. It doesn't have to be a wall. It can be a floor. It can be a ceiling. And then paste another. And then those two points in space share exactly the same location. So you can travel through like a wormhole. Yeah. And that's that's it. That's the fundamental level of the gameplay. And thus, much many hours of wonderful, wonderful fun will ensue. The intriguing minds of the level designers come up with more and more complex ways to uh, exploit that particular problem solution. And you can get a little frustrated. A little, possibly. Some of them are a little bit sort of... Um, quick reaction and perfect timing. Mm. But it's an amazing game, and when you reach the conclusion, you'll know that it's far more than a simple puzzle game. Absolutely. And more than that, I shall not say. But please, please, if you listen to nothing else we've said, go play Portal. (laughs) Exactly. and This is why I said this podcast is going to turn into a podcast about Valve. Yes. Because... Portal is what it is because of Half-Life. Half-Life has given life to all of these things. It was the the creator. Absolutely. Of course, what they were going to make after Half-Life, the actual sequel to Half-Life, rather than Half-Life 2, Mm -hmm. well, sequel is the wrong word, follow-up game, uh, was a game called Team Fortress. (laughs) Now, Team Fortress was originally a mod for Quake. Okay. Way back when. And when Half-Life came out, one of the things, this showed that their understanding of the mod community. Valve themselves made a couple of mods for Half-Life. Deathmatch Classic. Yes. Which are the id deathmatch maps in the Half-Life engines. Interesting. It is rather interesting. And Team Fortress Classic, which is the Quake Team Fortress redone in the Half-Life engine. Hmm. And once they put that out, they announced, and this may be the first example of them sort of employing a development team. I think they may have employed the Team Fortress developers Mm -hmm. and announcing that they were working on Team Fortress 2. So that was a long time ago then. Immediately following Half-Life. Wow. The game has changed a lot. Over those years. I remember seeing a picture of it from a while back and thinking, 
comparing it to nowadays, when it, back when it looked quite gritty and realistic and everyone was wearing camouflage. It was absolutely realistic. You were two army squads. And it was so detailed that the soldier with the rocket launcher mm-hmm. would have to kneel to fire. And there was a back blast on the end of the rocket so that he would have to make sure his squad mates weren't standing behind him at the time when he fired. <laughs> it was hugely realistic. And how things have changed. It was going to be more akin to, say, a Battlefield game. Yeah. Uh, like the 1942 games and Battlefield Vietnam. However, that didn't get much traction. It sort of disappeared under the radar. No one heard from it for in a while. Yeah. Then it sort of resurfaced as a more traditional Quake-style action game. Yeah. And then the next time we saw it, what? It reared its cartoony head. The style had changed hugely. It yeah. became, as you said, cartoony. And I remember very specifically that my co-host here was quite uh, disparaging of the original I was graphics. I will freely admit, I, I have yet to learn my lesson to trust Valve. <laughs> when I first saw Team Fortress 2 in what is now its modern incarnation, I was quite disappointed. I was actually very much looking forward to the original realistic warfare version of Team yeah. Fortress 2. And I thought they'd made a mistake. And I don't mind admitting that, but having played it, for one thing, yeah. and having heard an explanation of the logic from Valve, it now makes so much sense that it should have been obvious. Yeah. The cartoons allow for what they call recognisable silhouettes. If you mm. think about the shape of every single character in Team Fortress 2, the heavy is enormous and large, the scout is stick-thin. The soldier has the domed head of the helmet. The pyro has the weird baggy jumpsuit. They're yeah. all recognisable instantly under any conditions and from a distance. Hmm. Which, basically, as the game is one of quick decisions and strategizing, it enables you to react to the situation... And shoot the medic. And shoot the medic. Yes, Exactly. And that's the entire reason for that graphical style. It allows them to come up with red versus blue, not only in the colours of the teams, but the environments can give visual clues as to which base you're looking at. Mm-hmm. And everything is designed to give you this almost subconscious read of the situation. At a glance, you can see where you are in the level, who you're facing, and where they're arranged. Mm. That's the reason for what everyone else just sees is pretty graphics. Very pretty graphics. And the cartooning leads to a certain humorous presentation as well. Absolutely. It's a very funny game to play. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I should have trusted Valve. Did you learn your lesson? No. No? No, I didn't. Are you distrusting them again over something? Well, no, I've just had the lesson reinforced to me again. Ah, right. Because then they bought a small independent team who were basically working on the Half-Life 2 engine to make a zombie game. Ah, yes. Yes, yes. Now, I'm no fan of survival horror. I think I've made that pretty clear. That's my arena. That's one of those things where I can outdo you. Absolutely. I'm happy with that. And the zombie genre has never hugely appealed to me. Hmm. So I thought this was... Every game has a zombie mod. And it's people like true. to do it. Yeah. And I was wondering why Valve were so interested in the zombie mod. Maybe they just liked zombies, I thought. Possibly. 
And to the point that I saw all the videos and it didn't appeal, I liked the idea of it being co-op. I think more games should be co-op. Yeah, but not co-op in the sense of four people playing at the same time. Proper, underlined, cooperative play. Absolutely, which Left 4 Dead does do. I mean, you have to work together. However, even when I played it, I I got the demo, Mm -hmm. because I thought, I trust Valve. I got the demo, I played it through single player. Yeah. I thought, this is a horribly lacklustre experience. I didn't enjoy it at all. Mm -hmm. Didn't see the point. So when everyone else I knew bought it and started having huge amounts of fun, I I scorned and derided them. I thought, you're just being suckered into the zombie genre. Yeah. Until. (laughs) And I still maintain that I don't enjoy the single player. And I only barely enjoy the cooperative play. But then I played versus mode. And do you want to explain to the lovely boys and girls at home what uh, what versus mode means? Certainly. Left 4 Dead is a game where there are four survivors trying to battle their way from safe room to safe room in the midst of not really a zombie apocalypse. It's more akin to 28 Days Later. It's an infection. Yeah. And in the single and cooperative play, you'll play one of these survivors running from safe house to safe house battling zombies. Mm-hmm. In the versus mode, there are eight players, four players playing as the survivors, and four playing as unique infected super zombies. I will, I will constantly refer to them as zombies. I don't, I don't care if they're called the infected and they're actually alive. They just got a disease. They're zombies. Yeah, they are. It's blatantly a zombie game. Yeah. Uh, but yes, the super zombies. There is the hunter, who can leap great distances, pin survivors to the ground, and tear at their bodies. Hurrah! And lets out an ear-splitting scream as he leaps. Which can be immense fun to terrorise people with. Exactly. It's good psychological warfare. Mm-hmm. There is the smoker, who can use his projectile tongue to drag people across the map, suspend them from rooftops and choke them to death, or, if he drags them all the way to himself, claw them to pieces. We assume it's a tongue. We hope it's a tongue. Yeah. Although there are rumours it's also the intestines. Wonderful. And at least one completely non-endorsed... Yeah, let's not talk about Left for Head, shall we? <laughs> People can look that up on their own watch. Yes, suffice to say it wasn't a tongue there either. And the boomer. Ah, yes. Uh, the enormous, fat, bilious zombie who wanders around vomiting on people. Because he's that kind of guy. And exploding all over them. And whose bile attracts the horde in great numbers. So hundreds of zombies will descend upon those vomited on. Or exploded on. Or exploded on. Now... The more astute listeners will probably notice that we said there were four types of zombie, and yes. that was three. The fourth is the tank. <laughs> Only appearing at certain set points during the campaigns, points of high dramatic interest. Yes. The tank is an enormous, incredible Hulk-type character with the power to use cars as projectiles, or forklift trucks. Or rip concrete out of the ground. And use it to throw at the... Uh, the survivors. And the ability to bat survivors clear off the top of the hospital, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, playing as the infected, that's what I play Left 4 Dead for. Yeah. Because it all adds up to one thing. In multiplayer gaming, there's always one asshat on the server. <laughs> dedicated to making everyone else's life as miserable as possible. We call them griefers. Playing as the infected in Left 4 Dead is sanctioned griefing. (laughs) 
Your job is to make the survivor's day as miserable as possible. More to the point, you get to gang up with three mates to make their day as miserable as possible. You are planning ambushes, choosing who to pick on, and how. You are actually griefing. Yeah. As gameplay. I should have trusted Valve. (laughs) And I need to get Left 4 Dead and play it once I get a computer that can run something that isn't solitaire. Absolutely. So Half-Life has spawned wonderful, wonderful things. Not to mention, of course, as we have briefly covered, Half-Life 2, Episode 1, Episode 2, and the imminent Episode 3. Portal gun in Episode 3, Portal gun in Episode 3, please let there be a Portal gun in Episode 3. Yeah, I'm right there with you. If not, I'm sure it can be hacked in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, mods. It's a modifiable game. Okay, there we go. And also, of course, um, Lost Coast. Yes! Which was the weird tech demo that Valve released to prove they could do high dynamic range lighting, but also contained more game. Yeah, because they're that kind of guy. And as well, we've also got The Ship. The Ship? The Ship is another <gasps> mod. Ah, yes! The, what I played the demo of, that played the full game of. Again, it's employing a mod team to make it into a commercial product. That was one of the best concepts for a game I have ever seen. Yeah, it's fairly unique, actually. Do you want me to... Yes, please do. Uh, essentially, the plot of the game is uh, you are... It's it's, it's all like the 1920s, probably I think 1930s. So, yes. Everyone's wearing top hats and, and nice suits. And you are invited to... Uh, you, you're invited to go aboard a pleasure cruiser, essentially. And just wander around the ocean, have a nice time. But uh, once you get on board and you go to your room, you find a little letter that says, you have to kill... And a blank, you know, insert name of um, other guest guest player. Yes, another player. And you, you get money for going off and killing that person. So every person on that ship. So you've got to realise that there is someone on the ship who has your name on their letter. So whilst you're wandering around trying to kill someone, someone else is wandering around trying to find you. Now, in a 16-player game... Everyone you meet, there's only a sort of 1 in 15 chance that they want to kill you. Yeah, but I don't like those odds. And isn't it the case that there are also AIs around? There, there are um, security guards. If you pull a gun in the middle of a crowded room to try and shoot your target with, the security guards will come in and stop him and arrest him. And many are oh, many is the time when I quite foolishly pulled out a gun to try and kill my quarry. Only to be taken uh, for a security guard to run out and find me at the very last moment. Just when I was going to get a nice clean headshot, no one was going to see me, the, the, my uh, target had his back turned, and a security guard just sort of materialises from nowhere. It's right, you're coming with me. <laughs> and I got taken off to prison. And the thing about prison is you've got a little glass window where you can look out. And it was quite terrifying to see another guest, not the one I was going after, one I hadn't seen, standing outside the prison. Waiting and watching me. <laughs> it was terrifying. As soon as I left, I bolted in the opposite direction. It, that game is a good... It's a fantastic game for anyone with paranoia to play. And it's a huge departure from the traditional first-person shooter. Absolutely. I believe it's based on a sort of murder mystery weekend-type game. Yeah. But adapting that into the first-person shooter realm is a stroke of genius. 
Yep. Which Valve, of course, recognised and turned the mod into a commercial product yet again. It reminds me of another mod, actually, that was available for Half-Life. I think this also started as a Quake mod, and I've played an Unreal version of mm. it as well. Jailbreak. Oh. Which is a very, very clever game. It's team on team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in Counter-Strike, when you die, you're out until the end of the round. Yeah. In Jailbreak, when you die, you are out, but not dead. You're put into jail. Yeah. However, anyone on your team can, at any time, open the jail door. Ah. So it can be down to one player, but if he can make it to the jail door and open it, the whole team's numbers are refreshed. Uh-huh. So at the same time as fighting a team versus team game, you always have to guard your jail and keep someone back as a jailer. Oh, wow. That was another fantastic mod. And yeah, the mod community thrived in Half-Life. Another really bizarre one, I'm fairly sure it's a Half-Life mod, was Ricochet. Hmm. Which was almost like the disc game from Tron. Uh. That one's available on Steam. I think that comes in the Complete uh, complete Valve pack. I am going to have to go back to Steam and download the ship, because... <laughs> Damn it, man! Oh, I can't believe I'd forgotten that. I love that game. Joe, I've just noticed on my uh, um, list of notes here, I actually have some of the games that were licensed uh, with the Source engine. Oh, do you want to list them off so people yeah. can... Uh... Vampire Bloodlines was the most notable one on the list. Oh, yeah. Good game, good game. Also, the episodic, more recent content for Sin. I've only ever seen Sin episode one. I've never seen any more episodes of Game There are other game episodes, shops, yeah. but yeah, they were made with Source. Uh, Postal 3. There's a Postal 3? Not yet, but there will be. Oh, It's dear. licensed the Source engine. Oh, God. Oh, the terror. And Dark Messiah. Of uh, Might Magic? Yep. That was a surprisingly good game. I'm not a major fan of the Magic games, but that was a surprisingly good game. There are others, but those are the notable ones I came across. Yeah. So, Half-Life ultimately is a very elegant, very beautifully crafted little shooter. Its legacy, however... Is nothing short of phenomenal. Absolutely. And I recommend Steam to anyone. It is DRM, but as I've explained to you... You you are not a fan of DRM. I'm not a fan of DRM, no. In fact, I've never bought music from the Apple iTunes store Mm -hmm. until, very recently, they announced that they were making the entire library DRM-free. I have now started buying music from the Apple store. Go figure. Do you want to explain to the nice ladies at home and gentlemen... Certainly. ...other homes and possibly the same homes... What DRM is? DRM stands for Digital Rights Management. Basically, it's a little kill switch in whatever you own, your video, your music, your game, that contacts a server, it phones home, Mm -hmm. to make sure it's been legitimately purchased by you. And if it hasn't been, it will stop working. Hmm. Now this sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Tell that to Tribes 2 players. Or indeed players of any game that used to use the One network, which Half-Life used to do. Sierra's World Online network. When a company goes away, Sierra is no more. Yeah. The World Online network is no more. Any game that required phoning home to the World Online network to make sure it was legitimate no longer works, even if it was 
legally mm. bought. Uh-huh. This is the problem with DRM. There's always the possibility that what you've bought will be taken away from you. At any time, and you've got no recourse to take. None. And it only bothers legal customers. Because if someone wants to rip a Blu-ray movie, they're not going to rip it with the copy protection intact. Exactly. If someone wants to pirate a game, they will use a crack. They will not leave the copy protection intact. Exactly. So when the copy protection system goes wrong, the only people who suffer are the people who bought it legitimately. Absolutely. This is why I hate digital rights management. It punishes the people that buy the stuff with with proper good tender and money. Yep. Yeah. And Steam is digital rights management. If Steam fell over tomorrow and went away, we would not be able to play those games. Mm -hmm. That is a slight concern. However, Valve are an extremely successful company. Steam ain't going to fall over anytime soon. I don't think so. More to the point... It's DRM that works in every other way. Yeah. Unlike the copy protection that came with Spore, that lets you install on three computers, and then that was your lot. Mm -hmm. Steam will let you install on any number of computers. Any computer you install Steam on. Mm. You can go to a net cafe, and if it's got Steam installed, and, say, Half-Life 2 has already been downloaded, you type in your username and password, you log in, it says Half-Life 2 is downloaded, you own Half-Life 2, you can access this copy of Half-Life 2. Yeah, okay. So you can move it around. The only thing you can't do is give it to someone. Yes, it does take away the right of first sale, which technically is a problem. I don't see why, especially with the gift-giving system built into Valve, you can't pack up a game and hand it on to someone. Yeah. Uh, well, apart from the fact, obviously, that would deny them a sale. I suppose, but do it, Valve, you're, you're cool guys. Yeah, and um, Valve have made... Possibly the only DRM system that I can agree with. Yeah. Because it protects them in the way that everyone who argues in favour of DRM says they need to be protected. Mm-hmm. And as yet, until Steam falls over and goes boom. Now, this is something I just realised. Steam ain't going to fall over and go boom anytime soon, as I said. However, your curse... Yes. ...of killing celebrities... Celebrities, not digital distribution systems. As far as we know... Whenever you say, oh, are they dead yet? No, no, they're not dead. And then they die. Steam, that's not going to die anytime soon. It'll die tomorrow. It You've will not. killed Steam. You're going to have a load of angry gamers on your tail. No, I'm not finished. Okay. I was going to say, Steam has yet to interfere with anything I've legitimately wanted to do with my software. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I thoroughly believe, that Valve are a company committed enough to their clients, their mm-hmm. customers. And this is based on observation of everything I have seen, that if Steam were to go away, if yeah. they were to say we can no longer run the Steam network for whatever reason, yeah, I honestly believe they would release a patch for all the Steam software to allow it to run without phoning home. Wow, okay. I honestly believe they have that kind of commitment. Because they would essentially be giving away everything <laughs> that had ever been downloaded, because that would make it copyable. Yeah. But honestly, I think they'd rather do that than upset those kind of customers. Mm. Because that would be all of their customers. Even the boxed copy of Half-Life 2 required Steam. Yes, I remember specifically because I got that back when I didn't have an internet connection. Oh, dear. Yes, that's the other way in which DRM can upset people. Luckily, these days, pretty much everyone has an internet connection. 
Yeah, and if you've got a computer capable of running something like Half-Life 2, you've probably got an internet connection. I, re- I realise people that don't have an internet connection may be offended by me saying that, but, but then they also how won't are be they... able to hear this. Exactly, how are they listening <laughs> to this? So I love taking the piss out of the Amish online. Yeah. They ain't never going to hear about it. Except maybe they have that non-Amish friend who, you know, they, they, they ask him, could he use his magic box of infernal fire to so uh, see it, what people are saying about them? If you have any Amish friends... I found an Amish website... Really? How does that work? I don't know. Man, we're going to get hate letters. Do you think they scribe it on parchment and hand it off to someone and say, could you put that online for me? I want to find out now. Oh, man, we've got a, we've got a goal after this is done. <laughs> I wonder what the Amish entry on Wikipedia is like. You could say anything we They want. can't edit it to support themselves. That's true. Man, we're terrible people. If any, if, if we had any listeners, then I'm sure they'd be getting offended. This is a bizarre tangent we've gone on. How, how did... Yes, me, that's why. Yeah, you're having no internet. <laughs> yes, I had no internet at the time. That that was a problem. Now I have internet, like everyone in the world. Everyone listening to this. Everyone they? in the first world. Everyone listening to this. Everyone listening to this. Let's put it that way. Yeah. That's fine. Don't, please, listeners, make a copy of this and hand it to a friend who doesn't have internet just to prove us wrong. No, actually do. As long as you give them every episode. Yeah, we'll yeah. have them as a listener. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that way we get more listeners. One. Five. Well, yeah. We haven't had any comments recently, have we? Yes. Have we? Oh, yeah. I've got shit on the website. Well, because we've not updated for a couple of weeks, so ah. we've had the uh, the usual comments from Simon. Not me, I promise you. This ah. is another Simon. Okay. Asking where we are. Ah, we have a fan. Yeah. Wow. Hello. He, he's the guy who um, wanted us back before. Ah, and he wants us back again. He's demanding. He is quite demanding. Excellent. Uh, and also a comment from Phil. Ah, right. But we see him every week. We do see him every week, but he was mostly telling Simon that we've been ill and busy and that I was working on my dissertation. Ah. And so to kind of... I should probably do it myself. I should probably go on there and go, yeah, it is coming, but... Say it now. He's, he's probably listening. Well, he knows we're back. Yeah. Okay. But we're sorry. We are sorry, yes, it's true. We, no, we, we really are, we really are. I've oh. already explained about the dissertation. And yes. also, there was the slight threat that you were going to be evicted. It's not entirely gone. Entirely. Oh, yes, they have to work out if you've actually got enough natural daylight. Yeah. Yes. That'll be interesting. Because prisoners have bigger windows than you do. It's true. So, I suppose that still technically makes me Schrodinger's hobo. Kind of, yeah. I don't know if I'm homeless or not. Now, with my dissertation handed in, and my major project not being started until next month, mm-hmm. I'm actually left with like a week in which I have a lot of free time. Do you want to do a week of podcasts? No, I was actually going to say, I've got time to play something I've never played before. Right. And I'm willing to accept the challenge you laid down for me if you still have Final Fantasy VII on CD. I do. I'm willing to accept the challenge if you want to talk about Final Fantasy VII next week. Only if you play it here. So I can watch you play it. <laughs> and watch you tear your hair out in frustration, because it's a JRPG like no other. If I was playing it here, I'd have to play it on your laptop, and I'm not willing to do that. It won't run on my laptop. Exactly. My laptop's actually too good. So I've got to play it at home. Do you have Windows 98? I can certainly make a partition with Windows 98 on it. There we go, that would be cool. Do you want to do that? Do you reckon you're going to be able to play Final Fantasy VII in a week? Enough to start talking about it. Okay. Have you finished Final Fantasy VII? 
Seven. Last time I relied on you having finished a game that we were talking about, so it was a disappointment. <laughs> I did kind of let you down. <laughs> I've finished Final Fantasy VII about 30 different times. Then you will be the guy who knows the whole game, and I will be the guy who has an idea what it's like to play it. Okay. You sure you want to do Final Fantasy? Well, it's the one I know you've got a copy of that you can lend me. That's true. Do you have a PS2 still? Uh, have, no. you ever, have you ever had a PS2? Oh, yeah, I had a PS2. I, it's a fire hazard. Oh. My PS2, I can't use it or sell it because every time I turn it on, it makes a lot of sparks oh. and might well burn the house down. Well, in that case, I won't give my alternative, which was Silent Hill 2. Well, I have a PS3. It may be backwards compatible. And I believe I've played Silent Hill 2 before. You, you played the first level, didn't you? I, I did lend it to you, but I remember you didn't play very much of it. Well, you see, I'm quite willing to go through a JRPG. Yeah. But Silent Hill 2 is a survival horror. Ah, that's, that's, that's a different thing. That's a whole different kettle of shit. Although, I believe the challenge was to play a game that is widely regarded as a classic that I myself don't Distaste, like. Yeah. So, Silent Hill 2 would I'm not, count. I'm not a great fan of Final Fantasy VII myself. It is regarded as a classic, though. Absolutely. I will not argue with that. <laughs> so, Final Fantasy VII next week. It looks like it, doesn't it? Shit, okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm going to do some research. Yeah, you better, because I'm I'm going to be the one who's playing it for the first time before we start. Well, no, I, have I played Seven before? Joints, oh wait, I was going to say Joint Spiky here. Um, <laughs> really, really, really big sword. It's Cloud and the Master Sword. Cloud and the Buster Sword. Buster Sword. And everyone has giant hooves. I think I Hate played like hands. five minutes worth of it. Yeah. Did you hate it? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll be ranting next week. Yep. Oh, man. Okay. Fantastic. Well, so, uh, for next episode, viewer, uh, listeners, style your hair in giant crazy spikes. And bring get ready sh- for Simon to be outraged. Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm, you know what? I may just go and replay it, because I think I've got it on PlayStation still. <laughs> Excellent. So whilst you're playing, I may go, re- go through and go, man, this is worse than I remember. <laughs> but it's a classic. Yes, and that's what There's we're no about. There's no denying that, I suppose. So until then, I'm Simon. And I'm Jack. And this has been World 1 Stage 1. Bye-bye.